Danielle Dreilinger is a former education reporter at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and a Knight Wallace Journalism Fellow. She has combined her interests in education and reporting in her new book about the field of home economics. She talks about her new book, The Secret History of Home Economics, on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Hi, we're here today with Danielle Drylinger. She's a former uh, reporter for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. So welcome, Danielle. Good to have you here. Great to be here. So I'm really curious as to why you decided to write your fabulous book, The Secret History of Home Economics. What was it about home economics that drew you to do a deep dive? Well, so it's funny that you ask that because it was very unpremeditated, which is to say I wanted to write a book and I was thinking about like, what would be, none of the subjects I had in mind were really panning out. And I was like, what do I want to write about? And I thought, well, I want to write about education and history and race, gender, and class. And, you know, I should, I want to write about my personal interests as well as my professional interests. And I cook a ton and I knit. And I thought, what, you know, I'll just put all of these parameters in my head for a while and I'll see what comes out. And after a couple of weeks, I thought, wait, home economics, like the, class that taught girls how to cook because that's why I thought it was at the time that's how I knew of it and even then I thought you know shouldn't this be back by now I'd been covering education for the times Picayune for four or five years at that point I thought I'd never heard about home economics but here we are you know we have HGTV and the Food Network and Project Runway and all sorts of like DIY and the feminist knitting revival like why why isn't this back by now And then I started doing research and I found out that the first woman to go to MIT was one of the founders of home economics. And immediately that just completely blew open my mind about what was going on. I thought, well, clearly there was a lot more here than teaching girls how to cook. Well, you know, it is really um, kind of interesting because I had a personal experience of being um, a, a freshman in college in 1967. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was very interested in food, but not in cooking. Mm. And I really was interested in food as a cultural phenomenon. And right. in particular at that time, I couldn't believe that the thing that motivated people to sail around the world was to find spices Right. I thought, isn't that amazing that people would just be so involved in spices? And of course, I understood that there were economics involved and all kinds of things, but it was food. And then when you looked at coffee and how it spread around the world and chocolate and how that spread, 
Right. And then the role of like things like coffee houses and like the political discourse of various places. Exactly. I thought all of this is based around food. And that was what my interest was, but it was impossible to study it. And everybody kept trying to push me into home economics. And I, I, you know, the cooking part of home economics didn't turn me off, but what did turn me off was the sewing. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I just, I, I went on and got a degree in English and then I went to law school the way people do when they don't know what they want to do. (laughs) And and so I I find the book absolutely fascinating because it brought me all the way back to starting college. Right. And it was interesting to me just to see that kind of throwback to me. Yeah. And we, you know what, that's interesting. What your story reminds me of is, you know, this, one of the elements of society that home economics responded to and sort of worked through and eventually got trapped by is just the constant devaluing of women's work and women as workers. So for instance, uh, it reminds me of two particular stories from my book. One is the uh, Betty Crocker, no, it was a Betty Crocker test kitchens or General Mills. I can't, I think General Mills test kitchens um, could have been either anyway. Uh, and the test cooks, like the, the people who were doing all of the recipe testing and all of this tweaking, which, you know, is the systematic what's where I'm looking for, like the systematic evaluation of recipes, they were on display by the late sixties. You could do tours of the kitchens and they had to wear these little outfits that matched the decor of the kitchen. Even though they might be testing something that has nothing to do with it. There's one woman who's uh, oral history. I read, she was in the new Orleans kitchen, which was decorated with like fake iron curlicues. And she was <laughs> testing hamburger helper. And all of these people like just gawked at them. And you know, they the managers who were men referred to them as the girls in the kitchen. And they had to make all of this, you know, like treats for the holidays. And she said she once uh, tripped and threw an entire pan of muffins at the audience by accident. I mean, it was an accident, but she really, boy, boy, did she enjoy it. (laughs) Yes, I could see how horrible that that really would be. Right. And the other piece of that is uh, Martha Van Rensselaer, the co-founder of the big home economics college at Cornell, When she was just getting started, it was uh, as like a community education correspondence course for farmers' wives as an extension of the agriculture program. And she went to the professor of bacteriology so that she could take a course in bacteriology so that she could explain to women, in this case, the science behind, she said, dishcloths right? Like why, why do you need to scald a dishcloth? Like this is the bacterial life that's going on in your fabrics. And the professor said, oh, you don't need to explain that. Like, just, just tell them it's nicer to keep it clean. Oh, gee, that is so awful. That is really bad. Yes. Yeah. Really? Mm. Well, I think it is a wonderful step that this happened, but Mm -hmm. it seems to have clashed to a great extent with the onset of the sort of feminist wave that happened. I mean, I think that that's an interesting clash that, that where feminism 
really devalued that work too, in a way, or said, that's not the way I'm going to define myself, or, you know, I can't get, I can't feel good about myself just because I put a good shine on the floor kind of thing. Um, right. And that, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's really fascinating too. Yeah, I, I, let me, I'm just going to pause a moment there and give some just general context right. on, the, on the field. So home economics got start in the 19th century and it was doing two things simultaneously. So one is that the founding home economists were trying to bring science into the home so that people, typically women, could keep house more efficiently and just focus on what actually mattered both for health and then for their own, like what made house feel like home to them so that they would have more time to do other things. So that whether that be study or paid work or being with their children or anything, you know, being involved citizens, anything they wanted to do. And they simultaneously professionalized the home by turning it into an array of careers in which women could get higher education and be accepted as professionals because these were seen as, you know, sort of sufficiently related to women's jobs inside the home that they would be accepted. So it was things like dressmaking and hotel management and business eventually in the food and consumer world and science of you know, an array of science. You, women couldn't get jobs in chemistry labs, but if they could get a job in a home economics science lab in which they were studying the chemistry of meat proteins, for instance. And there was always this tension between you know, the question of what, was this liberating or was this repression? Especially because in order to get their message and across and to have the market share that they wanted, home economists partnered with any number of people, usually men, who thought that this was all a lovely way you know, to teach girls how to cook and sew because they were going to be maids and mothers. So eventually, you know, by the time you get, the home economics had this long golden age in which they really did have all of these jobs and all of these careers and all of these educational homes, uh, which I you know, go into in the book, through the world wars, through the Great Depression. But then after World War II, when you had that feminine mystique wave of repression, men coming back from war, women being forced out of the workplace, you still had tons of home economists working, but they got much more caught up in this uh, these larger messages that were being given to women, you know, without first without realizing it and then fighting against it with you know, varying degrees of success. Uh, but especially, in, this comes out in like K-12 curriculum where you know, women, the women were in charge of their own home ec departments in colleges, uh, but you know, they were not in charge of K-12, even if they wrote the textbooks. You know, there's still men in charge of you know, what textbooks get used. At, and of course, at that time also, there was no such thing as different textbooks for different states. You had to get one that was conservative enough to be adopted in Texas for the entire country. Right. So that is the messaging that you're getting to women. And the second wave feminists reacted against that. So there's an incredibly dramatic moment where Robin Morgan, uh, editor of the anthology Sisterhood is Powerful, was comes to the American Home Economics Association Conference in 1971 and tells them to quit their jobs. 
She says that they are, you know, tools of the patriarchy. She says, you know, by like, she says, I, I'm going to paraphrase slightly. You have immense power because actually, you know, something I should look, I, I feel like I should look this quote up. Anyway, she says okay. when you're, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a story while you're looking. Okay, good. So I think that all of this, I mean, it, it just has brought back so many things that I was involved in and, and all of that. Um, when I was in law school, so I started law school in 1971. Wow. And at that time, I applied for a job because there was a sign on one of the professor's uh, doors that just said, looking for a research assistant. Mm -hmm. And I applied for it. And the next day on his sign, on his sign, he had added women students need not apply. Oh, yep. Ah. Mm -hmm. 1971. And so I made a complaint and uh, uh, I was given a job at the library, the, the law library. And he took down the sign and he found a, a male um, research assistant and, and they gave me a job so that I would have a job then and mm -hmm. I wouldn't be working for him. That was their compromise. And I took it because I needed the job. And it, I also didn't want to actually have to work for him if he mm -hmm. didn't. Oh, of course. Right. It would have been so horrible. Um, and this is why we have gender civil rights legislation. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and of course, the legislator from Louisiana is the one who, you know, really kind of pushed it through and add, added women to the Civil Rights Act, which I think is really fabulous. Um, but go on. So I found, I, so I found this. this okay. so, I mean, Robin Morgan is, up, up, is an amazing writer. This page? page, this is page 242 in the book. Okay. So I, she gave, I mean, this amazing speech that I, like, I just sat there wondering if like, I can't like just put an insert in the book that shares the whole thing. She's, an, she's a great writer. Um, you do have immense power, psychological and economic, because every young woman in our culture at one time or another passes through your tutelage, which is true. And very frequently, that is the final icing on the cake, the nail in the coffin, after which she is a limp, jabbering, massive jelly waiting for marriage. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. Yes. So the, but so here's the fascinating part. The home economists, I mean, so Here's Robin Morgan at the American Home Economics Association conference. They'd invited her. This was not like, you know, her protesting to get into McSorley's. She was a panelist on women's roles in because they were talking about feminism. And the home economists were really horrified that that's to realize that that's how society saw them. Because they thought that they, I mean, they thought that they were preparing women for what they called dual roles for home and career, but they had, you know, they were working women. They were professionals, all of them. The ones who were married, you know, had husbands who were fine with them working, who were proud of them. Many of them weren't married. Many, you know, many home economists throughout the decades didn't have children or weren't married. And they immediately and they immediately defended feminists. Like they pointed out, someone said, you know, you, there's this message out there among, you know, opponents of fe the feminist movement that these women are anti-family. And that's not true at all. They're incredibly pro-family. They, they were, 
they brought their children to the National Council on Family Relations Conference. And the men at the NCFR conference gave them the side eye when the kids, you know, got fussier when like women were nursing their babies, which is hysterical. So Fem, like the home economists immediately like did this huge self-evaluation and were like, oh my God, we, we've missed so much. They did an evaluation of their curriculum. They you know called out all of the ways in which they had been perpetuating these stereotypes that like women do the housework and then do the yard work. And it's, you know, they really turned on a dime to embrace feminism. They endorsed the ERA early on they were you know they and they have been they they changed into you know a progressive view of the family for instance right. where they didn't have to be a nuclear family or divorced families were just fine single families there's a favorable uh review of a i can't of a there was a book for young adults in the Journal of Home Economics reviewed that was a, a gay couple with kids and it was favorably reviewed. They're like, this is a great example of, you know, a one kind of family and it's just right. legitimate. So, and this actually got them into trouble with the right in the eighties, which is a separate story, but it is really fascinating that like, you know, home economics has had a hard, has never, I don't think been able to shake that stereotype that not only is this women's stuff, but that it's anti-feminist. So what happened to make, let's say in the high schools, home economics go away? I mean, I, I think that mechanics went away, um, auto mechanics and shop or whatever it was called also went away, but how did that happen? So what happened is an overall change in U.S. education, and it started in the early 80s. So, you know, home economics had this triumphant decade responding successfully to feminism, to women join, rejoining the paid workforce, you know, to changing families. And then all of a sudden they get socked with, as all vocational classes did, the report a nation at risk from the Reagan administration. And that was the first in Sputnik to really drive home this emphasis on math and science and hard academics and you know, second languages and international competitiveness. So it was the, you know, we're our kids are not, our kids are not up to par internationally, we're falling behind. Incidentally, like what they had missed was that the U.S. was educating a greater and greater pop, like percentage of its population. More and more kids were going to college, were graduating from high school, were taking all of these classes. The elite academic kids in the U.S. were still perfectly fine internationally. You're just measuring a larger number of people, and yeah. you know, you have a you have more variety. Um, in fact, and what specifically you're going beyond the elite, but they specifically said that schools should cut back on classes that prepare kids for adult life and careers, such as home ec and driver's ed. And home economists were really furious about this because they had started as this scientific pursuit and this way for women to study science. And, you know, they had been seen as 
just stitching and stirring right. after that. Uh, and then, but this you know, emphasis has continued ever since, right? We have no child left behind in the early 2000s and a great, just a greater emphasis on testing and academics. And, you know, with that, that people can debate whether that was for the best or not, but the effect on home economics was to make it uh, just less and less time in the day for that kind of class. And thinking about, I mean, home economics has been vocational education since the 1910s, since the federal government first began supporting vocational education. But even so, when I look at the, you know, what happened to that versus shop versus auto mechanics, there seems to be a little bit, there seems to be more support for the boy associated fields than for home economics. I mean, maybe because just simply who's more likely to be holding elected office, right? It's men who, you know, and until the seventies, boys almost never took home economics. Right. So the people who were in Congress in the eighties, the men in Congress, you know, had not taken home economics. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) They never expected to open the refrigerator except to get a beer out. Though I will say one thing when home economists have pointed this out, one place where boys have learned to do things around the house is the military. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I was in the military. I spent three years after I graduated from law school as a JAG officer. And, And the kinds of life skills that people learned in the military were really, really enormously broad. I even things like how to brush your teeth and things that you would think people would have learned at home. They often didn't or hadn't. And when I was in, it was still the leftover of the draft. So Mm. the draft was actually over, but there were still people in doing at finishing out their service in the draft. Mm. And uh, so they had been drafted and it was really, uh, it was really amazing. But of course you had, men who were cooking and uh, the idea of peeling 20, 30, 40, 100 pounds of potatoes was very real. Right. And uh, it was a way that many people decided, oh, I really like cooking and I want to be a chef. Right, Uh, right. And that had been their first opportunity to even consider something like that. So, right. And of course, anybody who, you know, it, any job they then went for in the culinary world after that, they could say, you know, hey, I can get tons and tons of food out on a dime I cooked in the military. That's right. That's right. It really, really was a good training ground. But they were just training on the job. There was no right. actual academic component to it. And so they weren't even learning as much as a chef would in in culinary school about the science of what they were doing or uh, any of the economies of it because they didn't have anything to do with that. It was very much just the cooking. Um, Right. So, but it, it was something. It is a shame because it seems to me that, and of course I'm, I'm saying this really, I guess as a mother, more than as a person who went through high school (laughs) because my high school did not offer shop or home economics and so it wasn't even an option for me in high school and I graduated from high school in 1967 which is still 
in days when most places had. I mean, it's, it, it was quite it quite unusual that your school did not offer it. Yes, but it was a totally academic academic school, mm-hmm. and and so they didn't think that you should take the time to learn that sort of thing. You could just learn it. You didn't have right. to go to school for it. And uh, but to to have life skills. I mean, even things like. I always think oh, a life skill is riding a bike. You should know how to ride a bike in this world. You should know how to swim just yeah. because it's a life skill that you should have. And knowing how to cook for yourself, knowing how to change a tire, you know, all of those things are life skills that you should learn somewhere how to balance the checkbook. Although I guess that's kind of going out, but it well, was- Well, but how to, you know, I think we all use it. We use how to balance a checkbook as shorthand for, you know, basic personal finance. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that was definitely part of home economics. Um, Oh yeah, it it absolutely was. I mean, personal finance has been, you know, part of the field from the beginning because women were the spenders and the budgeters of the home. Right. Right. And to, to lose all of that, uh, you know, they can, there can be movies about taking the egg home to care yeah. for the egg or whatever, but it was just always so much bigger, always so much more important than that to, to have those life skills. So I think it's a real shame that those are things that have just been set aside. What do you think is the future of home economics? Well, that's a great question. I'm not, so I still think I, the, I, the thought that I had when I first started this project of you know, why isn't this back? I think that home economics is absolutely ripe for revival. It's still around. Uh, it is still to, at last count. And these stats are about 10 years old and not so great to begin with because there are so few people keeping track of home economics anymore. Right. But uh, at last count, it was still being taken by more than 3 million uh public school kids in the US every year. Uh, and people don't realize this because they the field changed its name back in the early 90s in a bid to get more respect. So they tend to call themselves family and consumer sciences now. Uh, at colleges, there's still more than 100 US colleges and universities that offer the major, whether that be called, you know, something like you know, human development or human ecology or family and consumer sciences. And K-12 class may be called something like life and careers or it might be called facts one or, you know, any number of professional like pro start one classes for kids who are interested in restaurant work. Those are home economics classes. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and, you know, also so many people, so many people, said to me over the course of reporting this book, which took a good three years, uh, they said, we should bring that back. And they said, yeah, our kids need to learn life skills. Our kids need to know how to be adults. Our kids need to know how to cook and sew on a button. Uh, And so there seems to be a real demand for it, but I think we also, I mean, being some, as a reporter who has covered education for many years, like I know what a hard sell it is to get anything into the school day. I mean, I would say, especially now where we're talking about, you know, making up for lost time with a pandemic and, you know, double you know, tutoring during the school day, but there's always something fighting for space. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that 
I what I recommend in the end of the book is that we should teach home ec not just as life skills, but you know this broader vision that many home economics classes already have. Like you know your your qual high quality home ec classes have this combined. It's the strength of the field. It's that it's this combined micro and macro look at the world. So on a micro level, you learn how to sew on a button properly. On a macro level, you're learning about the international clothing business world, you know, ecosystem and the environmental impact and the human rights and labor impact. And, you know, why is it that we can buy pants for $10 at Walmart? And here's, and you care much more about why you should sew on a button, right? And you can bring in any number of math and science and social studies skills into that as well. So I think it's really promising. I just, well, we'll have to see if there's enough people picking up their voices and asking for it. But what what you're talking about is really high school and bringing home economics. And middle school. And middle, and but... I'm wondering what is the future of home economics like as a college major and what you can still do in the future with that degree? Right. So, you know, you can, well, one, you can get a job as a home economics teacher, which there are a lot of jobs out there for home economics teachers. It's a really, in fact, the problem is less finding a job than finding people. And when districts can't find a, someone to teach the classes, sometimes they just cut the class. Yeah. So, which, you know, of course, gets you, uh, continues the, continues a downward spiral. But people go into any number of fields. I mean, hotel management is still uh, something that you can study, of course, nutrition, dietetics, early childhood, social work. So some of these are more generalist, you know, generalist degrees that prepare you for work in any of those fields. Interior design, which these days is commercial interior design more than residential. So like designing office space, think, you know, the, the, the architecting the inside of the, of the space. Um, and people still go into all of these fields. And some of them, you know, it's definitely one thing that home economics at the college level has lost over the years is, you know, those specialties have haired off and become their own, their fashion design, for instance, right, have become their own fields. And you don't have to take any generalist home economics courses to get a degree in nutrition or in fashion design or in food chemistry, for instance. Um, and I, you know, I, present the arguments, I guess, about whether what people in home economics say is that you gain something, you gain a, a much more holistic view of how all these pieces fit together if you have the general family and consumer sciences courses along with your, you know, con your concentration in nutrition or your concentration in fashion. Like you're not just designing fashion for, uh, well, I get you know, for food chemistry, like you're not just go designing, you know, new flavors of flaming hot Cheetos. You're thinking more about like the social impact of food chemistry and what you can do with it. You know, and you know, it's this is a movement that really picked up steam in the progressive era. So people who are in home economics are trying to make the world a better place. 
Sure. You can do food chemistry trying to make the world a better place, or you can, you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I really wanted you to know how much I enjoyed the book. I just think that it is, um, it is a story that really needed to be told. Um, did you find the research really um, sort of all over the place? I mean, there aren't a lot of books already written about this. It's certainly right. not the point of view that you took, yes. Oh, the research was all over the place and absolutely delightful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of books. Um, there's a, a history by Megan, I don't know if it's Elias or Elias at the Boston University Gastronomy Program. And she wrote a history of home economics in the last 15 or so years. Uh, but there's not, you know, really, I was piecing it all together from enormous numbers of places and just everything from, you know, I found out, gosh, some of it was like, once I knew what I was looking for, I started really digging in. So for instance, I knew that I was looking for home economists in the military, which is this enormous field as it turns out. And so I thought, oh, you know, let me look. So here I was looking for dietitians. What, what are they doing during World War II? And I found out, I don't remember how I came across this, that there were uh, three dietitians, U.S. dietitians, military army dietitians who were imprisoned in the Philippines in a, like an internment camp for, I guess it was, it wasn't, I don't think it would have been called a prisoner of war camp, but you know, I, once the Jap Japanese uh, army took over the Philippines, all of the Americans were like put in a, an internment camp of sorts. And there were three dietitians in there with the nurses who are better known, the nurses who were later called the angels of Bataan because of the work that they did. And so I read like looking for these dietitians and looking, I finally tracked down a photo of one of them, which is in the book, fortunately. And, it, and I read the accounts of the nurses and dug into like the American Dietetics Association journal. And I finally managed to piece together from all of these sources, this amazing story of these three women who were taking care of soldiers, of wounded soldiers in a field hospital in the forest of Bataan, you know, before like the death march, right? And who were then you know, in this camp, organizing the growing of crops and the cooking so that they could keep people alive above and beyond the, you know, two meager rations that they were being given. This is amazing. It's like this movie level story of drama and heroism. But, you know, it's not like anyone had written a book saying, like, here were the dietitians in Manila. Right. Ah, sounds fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Danielle. It's really been a great conversation and we're looking forward to your next book. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments.
This is Liz Williams.